some of you, if you're from New River, you might not, because we've talked about it recently a lot. But in our church recently, we've been talking about brokenness. It seems to be a theme that God has us in as a church. And uh, you say, why would anybody ask to be broken? <laughs> it's, it's one of those crazy kind of prayers. But I think it's very fitting that God has us in this season as he does, uh, and then that that would merge together with our speaker this weekend. And I'm so glad that, uh, that Bob is able to be with us this weekend. Um, uh, we're going to be looking at the life of Job and what he has for us. And as you're about to discover... If you haven't heard or watched the video, we've posted this video that Bob made. It's a preview of really what we're talking about this weekend. It's really good. If you've not seen it yet, I would encourage you to do so. We'll probably show it Sunday morning, so if you don't get around to it, we'll, you'll see it Sunday morning. But uh, it's just a really good little taste here of what, of what you're in for this weekend. Um, I believe that God has given... Uh, our brother, Bob, a very unique, he's positioned him uniquely to talk about this subject. And so um, I'm thankful for your ministry. The first, the first time uh, that I became familiar with Bob Sorge was about a year and a half or so ago. Bud gave me a book called The Secrets of a Secret Place. And uh, you guys know Bud's always passing around good books. So threw this one at me. And Wow. I was so blessed by the intimacy um, that the author of this book enjoys with Jesus. That's the, that's the impression I got out of that book. It's just intimacy. And, uh, and I just wanted more. So I ordered a couple more books. One on rejection, dealing with rejection. Something that God has been revealing in my own life four years ago. That I had been living with rejection my whole life. And uh, really about three, four years ago, the Lord just broke that out of my own. So then I, I see he's got this, cool, I'm going to read that book. So I read that, it was awesome. And then, uh, and then I picked up this book on Job. And I said, what? <laughs> and um, I would say it's the best book that I've ever read on Job. I've read a bunch of books on Job through the years. Uh, Job is a character in the Bible that has captured my attention um, for a long time now. So kind of tend to gravitate towards anything I can find on Job. And uh, this, I would say, is the best that I've ever read. And um, I think that, uh, I think you'll agree this weekend as we go through this. So that's, that's my introduction. I'm so thankful that you're here finally, Bob. And uh, we bless you, brother. Welcome to New River Church. Welcome back to Manchester. Uh, Bob is good friends with Church of the Living God. Anybody, some of our CLG friends are here right tonight. So we welcome you guys. Call your friends and tell them to come tomorrow. So, um, I was, so we'd love to have you come. And also, uh, River of Life. Any River of Life? I don't, I'm trying to see if I recognize. But I know, um, okay. So our friends from River of Life also have a real connection to Bob and then Legacy Church, Eric Peoples. And so you've kind of been in this area before. You're not new to Manchester. That's my point. 
And uh, we're welcome. We're glad you're here, brother. So come, let's welcome our brother, okay?
let me just mention quickly um, a couple books. This is the book that Doug mentioned. This is uh, on the book of Job, Pain, Perplexity, and Promotion. How's that for a title? And uh, it's a, a heartfelt exploration of the book of Job because I've been, uh, I've identified with Job's suffering. I suffered an injury to my voice 26, almost 27 years ago. And Job has been my buddy walking me through the intensity of the trial. So uh, it hurts for me to talk the real fast version. It was a bad surgery. And so it hurts for me to talk. So my strength is small. We're going to stretch our faith and do two sessions tomorrow. And, uh, and I'm waiting on the Lord every day for his promised healing. I'm just going to tell you, Maria, he is the Lord, my healer. And you're not listening to my last chapter. But I'm not looking at your last chapter either because God isn't finished with any of us in this room. He's bringing us forward into the fullness of his purpose. So uh, that gives you a feel for where we're going to go. And I invite you to turn now to the oldest book in your Bible. And don't go to Genesis because that's not the oldest book in your Bible. The book of Job actually written before Genesis. And so it's the most ancient book that we have in our Bibles. And you're welcome to come there. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being gathered in this way to wait upon you, to seek you, to call on your name together. Now we come to the Holy Scriptures, to this book that started it all for us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, would you honor these four sessions together? Come, rest upon us, visit us, speak to us, strengthen us, and reveal Jesus Christ to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me just mention one more thing. Uh, we are crushing Amazon prices at the table here. So uh, it's all about crushing Amazon. So uh, take advantage of the crush, okay? And, uh, and, and, and we have a deal out there, four books for 30. And if you do the four for 30 special, I'm throwing in. This is the Spanish translation. I just saw that. A Spanish version got mixed in with the English. How about that? Anybody want a Spanish copy? Who wants a Spanish one? I'm going to throw it to somebody. Who wants it? Maria. How did a Spanish copy get stuck with the English? 
but the English title is Reset. It, it, it's a book to equip you in how to establish a consistent prayer life, and I hope it's a blessing. Now, I believe that the book of Job is the first book that was actually put on paper. Um, Job, I'm persuaded that Job is the author of the book. And you try to find a timeline for Job's life because it, it's, it's, it's tough to know when did Job live. And there's various theories on it. But I'm just going to give you my best guess based upon the years that are mentioned. The only number that we know for sure is the scripture tells us that at the end of his ordeal, when the Lord restored him, he lived an additional 140 years. That's the only number we know. Well, Elihu is a young man in the book who is at one point in time speaking to Job. And Elihu says to him in 32 verse 6, he says, I am young in, year, in years and you are very old. So at the time of his trial, Job is very old. Plus, he's going to live another 140 years. I think you know, as I do, that men used to live upwards of 900 years before the flood. And then after the flood, if you read Genesis 11, the age of people began to decline, 500, 400, 300, 200, and so on, until you come to Abraham, who lived 175 years, Jacob lived 147, Joseph lived 110. So you're watching the thing coming down. Job, I think we can place him based upon how long he lived. So if he lived 140 years past the trial, and at the time of the trial, he is very old, how old was he? Well, we don't know. But I'm like, he had to be at least 100. I'm thinking maybe more. But let's be, let's, let's be conservative. At least 100 years old when he has the trial. Then he lives another 140. I'm going to put the guy about 250 years old when he dies, something like that. So that places him before Abraham when you look at Genesis 11. So Job is written. It's the only book written by a Gentile in your Bible. But I don't even think that's a correct way to say it because before there were Jews, there was no such thing as a Gentile. So Gentiles only existed when the Jews came into play. Before the Jews, there was no, the word Gentile didn't exist. And so Job lives before the Hebrews, before Abraham, before the Jews. And it was a day, it was an age when God chose Abraham, he narrowed his covenant purposes to one people. Before that, his covenant purposes were available to the whole planet. And so Job is this man who has got 
by reaching his heart for God and God's honoring him and interacting with him. And then somebody along the way got the book of Job, translated it into Hebrew because it surely was not written originally in Hebrew. Some scholars think that Moses translated it and gave it to the people. So that's a theory. We don't know. But it made its way, got translated and made its way into the Hebrew scriptures as the launch pad of this thing that we call today the Bible. Job was old enough to have grandchildren, it seems, because when you look at Job 19, verse 17, he says, I'm repulsive to the children of my own body, and his own ten children by that time have already passed, they've died. And so when he speaks of the children of his own body, he seems to be speaking of his grandchildren. Laban used the same language in Genesis 31, Laban in reference to his grandchildren, calls them my children. So there is this kind of language in the Bible in the ancient times where they would refer to their grandchildren as their own children. So how uh, we're trying to find where do we place Job? I've got him living before Abraham. And so that's where I'm, I'm, I'm generally dating Job's life. Now, the book of Job is the cornerstone of Scripture. I call it that because it was the first book that the Holy Spirit put down when the Holy Spirit was looking to launch this edifice that we call Holy Scripture. You know that when you go to build a building, that first stone that's put down is critical because now everything else has to align to that first stone, that cornerstone. It's the, it's the alignment for the entire structure. There are some people that wish the book of Job wasn't in the Bible. Problem being, it's the cornerstone. It's actually the litmus test for all of Scripture. Like, do you line up with Job? Because if it doesn't line up with Job, sorry, it's out. Everything in the Bible now has to line up with that cornerstone. But there are some people that don't like this. There are some teachers in the body of Christ. They'll get on to an idea. And then they're like, everything in the Bible supports my idea except the book of Job. And then it becomes, the book becomes this fly in the ointment that... And, and so then we just want to kind of get rid of the book of Job and scrap it. But God actually intended it to be the plumb line, the wisdom of God to make this book the plumb line for all of Scripture. Get the foundation right and the whole building is straight. Get the foundation wrong. Everything is out of whack. 
by that kind of comment, the builders always reject the cornerstone. They rejected Jesus as the cornerstone of the of the church. They've rejected Job as the cornerstone of scripture. The Jews stumble at the cornerstone of Christ and the Gentiles stumble at the cornerstone of Job. In my trial, basically what happened in my trial is the Holy Spirit just came through and excavated all the foundations of my life. Everything got ripped out from underneath me. And then it was like the Lord said, I'm going to rebuild the foundations of your life now on the book of Job. I'm told that the ancients used to study the book of Job and the book of Revelation together. There's something about looking at them as the bookends of Scripture. The Scripture says the first shall be last, and there's something about the book of Job that has this prophetic end time kind of implication to it that speaks to the last day's generation. Job, who comes down with boils, you all know that boils appear again in the book of Revelation, this time afflicting the armies of the Antichrist. One of the, one of the portions of Job that for me really speaks to the end time generation is Job 31 verse 1 where, Paul, where, where Job said I have made a covenant with my eyes why then should I look upon a young woman? I'm going to remember reading that verse and uh, as the Lord has led me I'm not going to speak on that on that scripture uh, in this conference but it so happens the Lord has led me to write a book on that verse, a whole book on Job 31, verse 1. Uh, and, uh, and so the Lord led me personally in a very clear way to make a covenant with my eyes related to sexual consecration. And so I break it out in the book and I talk about my experience and how the Lord has led me in that and I'm just going to tell you, Pastor Doug, I have taken more flack for this message than maybe any other message I've ever written on. I could talk to you about it sometime. It's been kind of interesting. But God put this little tool in the most ancient Book in the Bible, Job just says, I made a covenant with my eyes. And that little tool to equip us for consecration, I believe the Holy Spirit is pulling it out now in the end time generation and giving it to us in this last days. Does anybody in the room recognize there is a war on for the eyes of a generation? And the Holy Spirit's got an answer. Let's go back to the ancient spirituality of Job and recover this 
pearl of wisdom that God gave him to make a covenant with our eyes. I believe that there is a wholehearted generation at the end of the age, Revelation 14, undefiled virgins that will follow the lamb wherever he goes, a generation that will make covenants with God. They'll make a covenant with their eyes, undefiled, following the lamb, equipped at the end of the age from the most ancient book in your Bible, the example of Job. So this weekend... I am going to be presenting to you Job as one of my heroes. If he's not a hero for you, either I'm going to change your mind or you won't enjoy this very much. (laughs) Because I think Job is one of the greatest heroes that we have in the body of Christ. In fact, it is. It it seems to me that God felt the same way. Because how many have ever read it in Ezekiel? It's 14.14, Ezekiel 14.14, where the Lord says to Ezekiel, he says, even if these three men were, were, were praying right now for this generation, they wouldn't be able to save anyone because of the wickedness of this generation. And God, God pulls out three men to be prime examples to Ezekiel of godly men of intercession who save people in their generation. And God goes, even if these three were to cry out to me, they could only save themselves. Can anybody pull up those three names on the top of your head? Oh my goodness, who just came out with that? Noah, Daniel, and Job. Who was that? Noah, Daniel, and Job. So the Holy Spirit has got Job right up there with Daniel and Noah. I want to be in that company. Those are my buddies. Okay. So I'm going to present him as a hero this weekend. I'd like to summarize the story. I think you can appreciate, because of the size of the book, 42 fairly lengthy chapters, I think you can understand that we won't be able to do a verse by verse this weekend through the book. So I'm going to try to whet your appetite, and then you do the verse by verse. Here's a, a, a feel for what's happening in the book. God picks a fight with the devil. And God says to Satan, Satan, have you noticed my good friend Job? The guy's amazing. He loves me. He hates evil. He, there's, there's nobody like him in his generation. He shuns evil. He's upright. He's blameless. He says, have, have you seen my good friend Job? What do you think of him? And Satan comes back and basically goes like this. 
Yeah, little wonder that Job serves you. Look at how you bless his life. The guy would be a fool not to serve you. You've given him ten kids. You've given him a family. You've given him... Look how the guy is filthy or rich. You've blessed him beyond reason. Plus, you've put a wall of fire around his life. I can't even get close to the guy. Little wonder Job serves you. But let me tell you something, God. He doesn't serve you for who you are. He serves you for how soft you make his life. And I'll prove it to you. You take that wall of fire down from around his life and let me have a shot at him. You will be shocked at your friend. I'm telling you, he'll curse you to your face. And God's like, deal. Okay? You can touch his stuff. You just can't touch him. Aren't you glad that God sets the rules? And so in one day, incredible calamity explodes. It's all from Satan, permitted by God, actually designed by God, because God picked the fight in the first place. And so now Satan brings incredible calamity against Job's life. His oxen and his donkeys and his camels are stolen by raiders. 7,000 sheep out in the countryside. The scripture says that fire fell from heaven. Was it lightning? What kind of a lightning storm kills 7,000 sheep? I've never seen a lightning storm like that, but fire from heaven kills 7,000 sheep. And then a tornado moves across the wilderness, hits the house where Job's ten children are having a party, and collapses on all ten of his kids and kills them all. Just like that. And it all happened in one day. How many people in the room know that sometimes it all happens in one day? Job 1 verse 20, his response. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm pretty impressed with Job. He's got no precedent. There's nobody else that he can look at their story and gain comfort from it because he is the precedent. There, he has no Bible to, to turn to. He's going to start the Bible. He's got no prophetic voices to encourage him. Actually, he's going to end up with the opposite. 
and in the midst of the maelstrom, in the midst of all the crazy winds in his life, he has no idea what's happening. He falls to the ground and he worships God in his darkest hour. He loved his God. Chapter 2, round 2. God says to Satan, Hey, have you noticed my buddy Jehovah? He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. There's nobody like him in all the earth. And you stirred me up against him for no reason whatsoever. And you said that he would curse me to my face. But look at him. He's not cursing me. He's loving me in the darkest pit of of his life. Nah, 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 nah. Maria, that's in the Hebrew. You have to be a Hebrew scholar like me to get those pearls out of the Hebrew. Nah, 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 nah. There's nobody like him. And Satan fires back and goes, skin for skin. What Satan means is this. You haven't actually touched the man yet. Until you touch the man in his body, you haven't really gotten to the man. You've only let me touch his stuff. You haven't given me access to him yet. You take that hedge of fire down from around his body and let me have a shot at his body. I'm telling you, you will be shocked at what comes out of your friend, I bet you he curses you to your face. God's like, deal. Okay, you can touch his body, you just can't take his life. Now, how many know that when Satan has permission to touch your body but not take your life, he's going to take that just as far as he can? Because Satan always is going to overplay his hand. So I think Job was actually taken within inches of his life. He takes a piece of broken pottery, sits on an ash heap, scrapes his boils, his wounds, and life stops. For Job. It's now about you and me. When God brings the cross into your life, you take it very personally. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Job is now taking this thing very personally. Everything in life stops and he launches into this personal pursuit of God. Who are you anyway? Because everything that he thought he knew about God now was up for grabs. And his three friends come to visit him and comfort him and help him process. And I just want to say from the start, 
Job's three friends really are his friends. Because they get a lot of flack. You know, everybody talks about Job's three friends and they get a lot of flack. And I'm going to get in there too, okay? I'm going to poke at them too. But they really are his friends. And they really are going to give it their best shot. They're trying to help him. They're trying to serve him. And so they come. And, and, and the scripture says that when they first arrive, they just sit down with Job for seven days and don't say a word. Grieving with him because of his extravagant losses. But how many know that you can only remain silent for so long? And so they're going to start to express their perspective on what is happening. Now, let me just try to help us for a moment. Understand that when you read the book of Job, you are reading it like sitting in a theater. Because here's what God does. He arranges this theater, the book, puts us in the audience and then gives us the backstory. So we get the backstory right on the front, chapters one and two. And where the Lord, you know, just gives us all the divine information. And then he puts five guys on the platform that have none of that information. So you and I sit in the theater and watch a drama unfold in which we know all the information and they know none of it. We know exactly what's coming down. And we're like, oh yeah, God and Satan, they had this wager going on in heaven. They got a duel going and Joe Beer, the guy that they're betting on and Satan thinks that he can get you to curse God and God thinks you're his man and his grace is sufficient and you're going to come through better for it. And so Satan's got an agenda, God's got an agenda and we just want to talk to Joe, but we can't. All we can do is watch. And we're watching a drama with the information given to us that they don't have. And now they're trying to figure out what is going on here. And the five of them are on the stage having this interaction. That's Job, his three friends, and then a guy called Elihu who makes a later appearance in the book. Five main actors in the drama. And they start to pontificate on sin and righteousness and judgment and they get theological and they and and and, and it's uh, and we're in the audience going oh come on i can't believe you just said that you don't believe that for a minute why did you just and we want to talk to the guys the whole time and coach them through the drama. But we can't say a thing. All we can do is watch. And we're just like the whole time going, oh, I can't believe you. You, you really think that? And then 
kind of occurred to me. I think we all have our turn at this. Where circumstances will happen in our lives, it's our turn on the stage, and God doesn't give us the divine information. And now we and our family and everybody in our circle, everybody in our local church, we're all trying to figure the thing out and we're all bumbling our way through the drama, trying to figure out what's God doing, what's the devil doing, what is going on here? And 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 the Lord's like, actually, yeah, this is, this is kind of how it works. And I showed you with Job, now it's your turn. Somebody asks the question, was the theology of Job's three friends right or wrong? It's a little bit of a tricky question because God said of them, he said, he said to Eliphaz, he says, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So God says of the three friends, they did not speak right of him like Job did. And yet Paul, the apostle, quoted Eliphaz in the New Testament. That's 1 Corinthians 3.19. So there is truth in the things that Job's three friends say, and yet God says they didn't speak rightly. So here's my best angle on it. I think they had the right counsel for the wrong situation. It was truth. It was godly truth, what they spoke. But it didn't apply in the situation in which Job found himself. And then I kind of realized that I probably do the same thing with people. I'm sometimes giving out my wisdom, and I might say things that are true, but are they really applicable to the circumstance that I'm addressing? And so it it, it becomes a challenge because we want to judge things not by what we see, but what we hear. Jesus said, as I hear, I judge. And if you look at someone's life and judge them based on the circumstances you see, you're likely to speak truth that is misplaced. But if you will hear from God and then speak what God gives you for the situation, then you'll be able to speak life to someone as they're going through life. The basic theology of Job's three friends for me is summarized in Job 4, verse 8. It's a sowing and reaping theology. Eliphaz says, even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And Job's three friends basically have a sowing and reaping theology, which is not a wrong theology. How many know that there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about sowing and reaping? And Jesus taught about sowing and reaping. And that principle is a valid biblical principle. Sowing, it's very real. But 
not everything in life can be made so simple as a sowing and reaping. You do this, you'll have this consequence every time. Job's three friends saw it like that, and that's why they misdiagnosed what was happening in Job's life. They basically go like this. For this to be happening in your life, Job, the circumstances in your life are screaming at us. There is something wrong in your life. You need to find it. You need to repent of it. You need to do business with God. Because if you don't repent of the compromise in your life, you are under the wrath of God. And my friend, you are coming down. Actually, I kind of had, in my earlier years, this kind of a theology. Just being honest with you, I would look at people's lives, see the fire in their lives, and just kind of assume, well, if you see a lot of fire, you must be looking at a lot of issues. And I made that assumption. And then the Lord brought me to Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. God does not deal with you according to your issues. He doesn't turn up the fire in your life based on your issues. He turns up the fire in your life based on your cry. So the guy who has all the issues in his life, King Saul, doesn't get any of the fire. And the guy who has a heart after God, David, gets all the fire. God responds to the reach of your heart. And you cannot look at someone's life, see their circumstances, and decide based on their struggle, oh, there must be a lot of issues there for God to have to do that with their life. Listen to this. The means that God uses to punish the disobedient and to promote his champions, he uses the exact same means. So if you look at the means he uses, you can't distinguish. For example, there are some people in the Bible that God struck blind. In some cases, it was judgment. How many remember the story of Elymas, the sorcerer, that gets struck blind because he's deceiving the proconsul? And then there's Paul, who is struck blind because God's got his number. You're going to be one of my champions in the kingdom. If you just look at blindness, you would go, well, you know, I guess Paul's under judgment. Actually, no, God's chosen him to be one of his champions. How about prison? If you look at Zedekiah, Zedekiah is in prison for his compromise. And so you go, well, if somebody ends up in prison, it's because of compromise. Well, how about Joseph? Joseph ends up in prison not for something he did wrong. He ends up in prison for doing everything right. He's in prison because he says no to Potiphar's wife. And sometimes you can find yourself in prison because you made all the right decisions. 
you can't look at someone's prison and figure out from their prison where they're at with God. You can't judge by what you see if you don't hear something. Keep your mouth shut. Because it's impossible for us to look at the circumstances and know what's going on. But this is the mistake that Job's three friends make. They look at Job's circumstances and assume that they're able to diagnose and say, Job, there is an area of great sin in your life and you need to get it right. So they come together to comfort Job. They're quiet for seven days, but... You can't stay quiet forever, and somehow in the course of the seven days, it comes out that all three of them are feeling similar things. Now, I don't know how the conversation happened. I'm just going to put some of my sanctified imagination to the thing right now. But I can imagine after seven days that Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad, that's their names, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, the three friends, I think they kind of go like this. Um, Bildad, are you getting anything? Bildad's like, I don't know, I'm not, it's, it's really hard for me, I'm not really getting anything clear, but I, this much is very clear to me. This is not God. Uh, Zophar, are you getting anything? Zophar's like, man, it's, it's real, this is a tough one, but the only thing I'm getting is the word stronghold. I think there's a stronghold in Job's life. Uh, Eliphaz, are you getting anything? And Eliphaz is like, guys, I've got a witness. I really identify you. I've got an amen to that. I'm getting a stronghold of deception and a religious spirit. I think, brothers, that we have really got a stronghold of deception here. I, I, I'm just going to warn you. I think we need to say something to Job, but I'm going to warn you. We're looking at a stronghold of deception, and I don't think this is going to be easy, guys. I think it's going to be a tough one. But who else is going to be honest with our friend? If we're not going to be honest with him, who will be? And so we've got unity here in the eldership. I think we owe it to our friend to bring the unity to our brother and just bring this thing out. And so they come to him in unity, and they say, uh, Job, we've prayed about this. We've, we've been talking to the Lord, and we're, we're telling you, brother, there is something wrong in your life. There's an area of compromise and disobedience, and you need to do business with God and repent because you are under the wrath of God. And if you don't get this thing right, brother, you're coming down. And Job is like, 
he starts doing the introspection thing. How many people have done the introspection thing? It's like, you know, if I could find something to repent of right now, if I could repent my way out of this fire, I would. How many have ever been in so much pain that you would be willing to repent of anything? I found myself willing to repent of stuff I never did. If repentance will stop the pain, I'll repent of anything. I started taking interviews. Can you think of something I can repent of? Anything to stop the pain. When you're hurting bad enough, you'll repent of anything. And Job is like, boy, wouldn't it be sweet if I could just repent my way out of this thing right now? But he's looking for the compromise, and he's like, guys, I, I just can't find it. And they said, look again. And he's like... It's just not there. I've been walking in integrity with the Lord. I can't find. No, no, Job isn't claiming to be perfect or sinless. He's just claiming there is no big, bad, ugly compromise to explain the hell that has broken loose in his life. And his friends are going, oh, oh, you better believe it's there, bro. You better find it. And he's like, guys, I can't find it. It's not there. And they said, yes, it is. And he said, no, it's not. And they said, it is so too. And he said, it is not there. And they said, yes, that compromise is there. And he said, no, it's not. And they do that for 20-something chapters. <laughs> and by the way, the argument just keeps on escalating in, in intensity as you go through the book. <clears throat> now, you and I know that what happened to Job, the loss of, of his livestock, the fire that killed his sheep, the boils, the killing of his children, you and I know that all of those tragedies were instigated by Satan. We know that. But toward the end of the book, in chapter 41, God's going to give Job his perspective on what's going on. In chapter 40, the Lord begins to talk about the behemoth. The behemoth was the most formidable land creature of that time. We don't know exactly what animal this was. Was it a was it some kind of dinosaur or it, it seems to have been a creature that does not is not with us on the, is 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 now extinct. And then in chapter 41 he starts to, the Lord starts to talk about Leviathan. Leviathan was the most formidable sea creature. So God is talking about the, the might and power of the most formidable land creature, chapter 40, and then the most formidable sea creature, Leviathan, Leviathan in, verse four, in chapter 41. And the Lord starts to itemize the various qualities of Leviathan. It's quite an extensive, the Lord just kind of goes on about the strength and the power and the might of this sea creature called Leviathan, which 
We don't even know what that creature was. It's certainly not with us today any longer. Some ancient, powerful sea creature. And in chapter 41, verse 8, God says to Job, Lay your hand on Leviathan. Remember the battle and never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? And here's what God's saying to Job. If you were to lay hold of Leviathan, you would have a fight that you will never forget. How about me? Job, you have laid hold of God. That's what God is saying. The reason for the book, the reason for the trial, is because Job has laid hold of God. And if you think Leviathan is something to get a hold of, how about if you lay hold of the living God of the universe? You get hold of God, you might have hold of something that's just a little bit bigger than you were ready to take on. When Jacob got hold of God, he came out of the encounter limping for the rest of his life. And when Job got hold of God, it shattered everything in him, everything around him. And God's going, you took hold of God. That's why the trial. Isaiah 64, verse 7, And there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. God is intense, my friends. He is a consuming fire. He is altogether powerful. And when you get hold of God, buckle up. And he survived the encounter because of the mercy of God. Now, I see God using this trial to transform Job into a spiritual father. That's one of the main themes of the book for me. God is making of Job a spiritual father. Job seemed incapable of imparting to his first set of kids his passion for righteousness. They were taking the inheritance of their father because their father was so rich. They were using the inheritance for selfish purposes. They were partiers. And, and, and Job is like, I can't reach my kids. And I think that he had a cry in his heart related to his kids. Job 3 verse 25, I'm sure that some of you have heard this verse preached on. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. And we ask the question, Job, what did Job fear? I'm going to give you my theory on it. I think he 
feared that his kids were going to suffer the consequences of their behavior. That's why he sacrificed on their behalf. He was asking God to have mercy on his kids because of the choices that they were making. And now here it seemed to come, the consequences of their compromise had caught up with him. Job chapter 12 verse 4. I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him. The just and blameless who was ridiculed. Job says this. He says, I asked God for something. He answered my prayer and now my friends mock me. And we're going, what did Job ask for? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what he asked for. So we're left to theories. I'm willing to share my theory with you if you want to hear. Does anybody want to hear my theory? Okay, bro. What did Job ask for? I think he asked for his kids. God. How do I reach my kids? Give me my children. And it's as though the Lord was saying, Well, Job, to reach your children, I've actually got to start with you because I've got to change you if I'm to get your children. To change the children, God first changes the father and the mother. When God chooses a generation, he starts with the fathers. So when God's coming after you, he's probably coming after your kids. And that was personal for me right now. I think this is actually about my kids. At the end of the book, Job has a second set of ten children. He loses the first ten in the trial. At the end of the book, he has ten more children. And this time in chapter 42, they are described in with incredible language. They are stunning. They are beautiful. They're outstanding in integrity. There is this big difference between his first set of ten children and his second set of ten children. And the book intends for us to see the contrast between set A and set B of Job's children. And the difference between his first set of kids and his second set of kids, the difference is Job. God changed the father and by bringing Job through the crucible now Job was empowered to raise up a powerful, beautiful righteous end time generation. I think that his children are pointing to an end time generation. The book of Job does something that's very unique in the Bible. At the end of the book, chapter 42 he's got three daughters and seven sons. Throughout the entire Bible, whenever there are children, they will always name the sons and rarely name the daughters. But in the book of Job, the sons are not named and the three daughters are. It, it's really 
Titus, Job chapter 42, name his three daughters and not the seven sons. I think it could be pointing to the end time bride of Christ that Job has been equipped and prepared to raise up an end time bride that is beautiful in fervency and character and in uprightness and, and in, uh, in beauty before the Lord. And I think that God is doing that kind of thing in the earth in this hour. He is visiting the fathers and mothers, taking us through refining circumstances in order to change our fathering paradigms, our mothering paradigms, so that we are equipped to raise up an end-time generation that is prepared for the coming of Christ. Now, I used to think that Job's first set of ten kids were a complete loss. I used to think that. But I've been looking at it just a little bit differently in recent times. Because uh, here's what I'm thinking, Pastor Doug. Job sacrifices on behalf of his first ten children. I think they were actually effectual. I think God honored them. I think God forgave his children. And my theory is, I, I can't say it for sure, but I think that when we get to glory, we're going to meet Job's first set of kids because he sacrificed for them in the way that God had provided in that time. I think God honored it. I think God took them out while he could to preserve them. And I think that when we get to heaven, you're going to meet his first set of kids. In fact, God actually is going to honor them. He has honored and dignified them and made them players in one of the greatest cosmic stories of human history. So when you get to heaven and you meet one of Job's first set of kids, one of his you know, first kids, you're going to be like, that was you. You were one of his first. You actually went through that thing. I mean, that was intense. And they're going to look at you like, yeah, I know, man. We were really in the middle of that thing. And they're dignified forever as participants in one of the greatest cosmic stories of human history. So even the first set of ten kids, God has a way of restoring losses that to us we thought were forever lost. Why did Job write this book? It's not very complimentary of his friends. Why did he write it? Because when the thing is over, they're still his friends, and, you're, and we're going like, oh, why, did, why did he write the book? I've got a theory about that one. Some of the stuff I'm talking about, I realize I'm presenting some theories of understanding because we can't really know for sure. I'm going to give you my theory on why Job wrote this book. I think his kids made him. I'm talking about the second set of kids. I think his kids were going, Papa, you have to write this story down. And Job goes, guys, I'm not going to write it down. It, it, my friend, they're still my friends. I am not going to write down what they said. And they said, Papa, you have to, because what God did in your life, it's now our story. Give us 
her story. We've got to have it. And I think his kids had such ownership of the story that they insisted that Job put it on paper and Job wrote it to give it to his kids because it was their inheritance as well. And I believe that God does the same thing today. He will write stories with our lives in such a way that our children will say, this is my story too. And the children will gain ownership of the story that you've lived and it becomes a family legacy. The way the story ends... As they're going through the dialogue, you come to chapter 19. And Job says, guys, this is 19 verse 26. He says to his friends, in my flesh, I'm going to see God. And here's what he means. He means, I am on a journey with God. This is a spiritual journey that I'm on. God's doing something here. I think he's chosen me for something. I think I'm his friend. I think he's, I think his favor is on me. I think he loves me. And I think before the story's finished that I am going to have an encounter with God and I am going to see him with my eyes in the flesh. And his friends go, oh my goodness, the man is delusional. He thinks God likes him. He thinks God is for him. He thinks he's a friend of God. Job, you don't get it, bro. You are so out of touch. You are under the wrath of God, and God's about to squish you. And he's like, actually, I don't think so. I think he likes me. I think he's for me. And I think this is going somewhere. And before the story is finished, I am going to see God. It turns out that Job is right. By the time the thing is finished, chapter 38, everything changes. God comes to Job in the whirlwind. Chapter 38 and reveals himself to Job. So Job goes, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. This is the hope of my life, the dream of my heart. I want to see God. Somebody says, well, Bob, you are going to see him one of these days. You get to the other side of the veil, you're going to see God. I understand that part. I'm talking about in this life. I want to see him like Abraham saw him. I want to see him like Jacob saw him. I want to see you like Ezekiel saw you. I want to see you like Isaiah saw you. I want to see you like Paul saw you. I want to see you like like John saw you. I want to see you like Joe saw you in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself how my heart yearns within me that's what Job said turns out he's right because God comes and reveals himself to him in the whirlwind now here's how I divide the book there are three tornadoes in the book by my definition okay and I'm using the word whirlwind and just translating it tornado. The first
first. It, this is my, here's my summary of the book. Chapters one and two, that's Satan's tornado. When Satan comes and looses his, uh, his tornado in Job's life, it's, it's mayhem as hell. Chapters 3 to 37, that's man's tornado. Because when Satan brings his tornado into your life, buckle up. Man's tornado is not far behind. And now here come all the opinions of people. And you've got from chapters 3 to 37, just the the mayhem of people's opinions and man's tornado. But if you have been visited by Satan's tornado, and if you have experienced man's tornado, is it possible that you are ready for God's tornado? Because here comes God in chapter 38, and it's the last portion of the book, chapters 38 to 42, is God's tornado, where God comes in the whirlwind and reveals himself to his friend, and everything changes because God manifests himself to Job. Tornadoes signal season change. And when the tornado of God came to Job, his season changed, everything changed, and God came through for his friend. In chapter 9, verse 21, Job called himself blameless. And then in chapter 40, verse 4, he called himself vile. And I want to know, Job, how did you go from blameless, chapter 9, to vile? What happened that you now, you once thought, saw yourself blameless? Why do you now see yourself vile? And the answer is, he saw God. What did you see, Job, that turned you from blameless to vile? That's what I want to see. I want to see God in a way that makes me tremble, that sets me on the ground, that causes me to see the vileness of whom I, who I am in contrast to the glory of who he is. I don't even really know what I'm saying right now, Lord, but I'm just going to say it anyways. I want to see you. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'm telling you, bro, that's why I've made a covenant with my eyes. I want to see God. The man who made a covenant with his eyes was the man who one day saw God. That connection is not lost on my soul. And so I'm going back to the ancient spirituality. I'm going back to what Job, first of all, discovered. I'm going to pull it up pull it up and live it for myself because I want to see God. It's the hope of my life. It's everything I'm living and dreaming for. So we're finished for tonight. Let me just summarize how God restored his man. Here's how it ends. Here's the, 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 the blessings of Job at the end of the story. He gets ten more children. He is changed profoundly in, by the grace of God. He is healed. He gets double his wealth back. He writes the first book of the Bible. He becomes a spiritual father to every generation. Plus, he sees God. So
in a while, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to endure in this trial, and I'm going to lay hold of the hope that we have in this gospel, that maybe he loved me enough to also interrupt my life, to set me on a journey so that I might become a spiritual father to an end-time generation that will be raised up beautiful in their generation to the glory of God. Stand with me. We're finished. Heavenly Father, I thank you that the hope that we have in your word, thank you, Lord, that we can look at how you, how, how you walked a man like Job through a, a horrific trial. But by the time it's over, we're looking at this thing, uh, um, king of my heart. By the time we're looking at this thing, we're going, Lord, he came away with more than if the trial had never happened. The losses were deep and profound, but because he held to your hand, he gave you his love and he stayed in faith and in love. You brought him through to greater triumphs than if the trial had never happened. And I believe, Lord, that your same kindness is is at work in our lives, that you're going to do something through our lives, that by the time the story's finished, we will say, you have given us more than if the trial had never happened. Lord, would you give us mothers and fathers in the faith that will raise up an end-time generation? Would you so transform us that we can impart to our children a legacy that they have ownership and they say, this is now our story too, and they walk with us in it? going to sing one more time tonight. We sang it once already. Chris is going to lead us again. You are good. You are good. You never let me down. And I just invite you to lift your voice and your heart to the Lord. It could be that as we sing this song, there might be someone here that you just want to come and stand in the front to express it to the Lord. Just to say, Lord, I'm, this is my song right now. I'm just saying, you good, you are holy, you are faithful, you are merciful, you are true, and I'm going to worship you in my darkness. You give, you take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You're welcome to love him and worship him as we sing this song. God bless you, and we'll look forward to 9 o'clock tomorrow morning.